Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. What are the true benefits of knowing your supply chain? My guest and social impact pioneer today is Sean Askenosi, and he has a few thoughts on the matter. In 2006, Sean left a successful 20-year career as a criminal defence lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory. Founded at the forefront of the American craft chocolate revolution and regarded by many as a vanguard in the industry, his company, Askenosi Chocolate, was recently named by Forbes as one of the 25 best small companies in America. He was named by O, the Oprah magazine, one of 15 guys who are saving the world. He's received two honorary doctorates and has an Amazon number one best-selling book, which he co-authored with his daughter, Lauren. It's called Meaningful Work, the quest to do great business, find your calling and feed your soul. Sean is going to cast a light on the efforts and rewards of deeply knowing his cocoa growers. And I suspect they might just suggest some benefits for other companies other producers and other growers out there, especially with climate change charging down on us. So Sean, it's great to have you join us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, Sean, I wanted to start off our conversation. You have been on a very pioneering journey, and I was wondering whether you could share that story with us about how you came to set up your own chocolate business. Thank you for asking this question. And, you know, the the thing for me is I was doing one thing and then I stopped um, loving it. And so I needed to find something else. So I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years, loved it, loved every single thing about it. And then there came this moment, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to this, when I stopped loving it. And at the time, I didn't know that my body was telling me, Sean, you're, you're not loving the courtroom anymore. But that's what happened. It was first felt in my body then sort of a mind and spirit thing, not doing right work, as the Buddhists would say, because I did believe it was right work and it was for a just cause, defending people accused of of terrible crimes. But it happened, mind, body, and spirit said, you can't do this anymore. And so I needed to find something else. That something else, finding something else took five years. I'm still practicing law all all the while, trying to find the next thing. And I think a lot of people can relate to that especially now. I mean, globally, the great resignation, the great quit is upon us in a massive, massive way. The thing that I find, though, is that it's quite easy to find the next job, especially now. Unemployment is very low, very, very competitive um, for companies that are looking for to hire new talent. And so Pretty much it's a buyer's market out there now. And, and so it's easy, I think, if I could say that, to find the next job. What's not easy at all, in my opinion, is 
the work, deep work, not to quote the title of Cal Newport's book, and different kind of deep work that is required to hear the call of your next chapter, of the next calling, of your next vocation. I think that requires a lot of deep work because, as I say, you can go to the next job and it can be the thing that you want it to be. But if you have felt that sort of gut punch of this isn't for me anymore, what's happening, I used to love this and now I don't, and you felt that and you you answer that gut punch by jumping to the next job without doing the deep work, you'll find yourself back where you were in you know a matter of two or three years and perhaps feeling the same thing. So for some, I encourage them to do this deep work and take some steps to really listen to your heart and do some exercises that will really prepare you um, to do that. Now, I'll also say, and this is a very important caveat, it's easy to find the next job and this work is hard and can take a long time to find your next inspiration and passion, but it's also hard to stay. And I think one of the lost virtues in our current society is that of stability, the virtue of stability. And you might be saying, well, you, you didn't, you, you left. Well, true, but I stayed at it for 20 years and nearly 20 years. And I've sort of learned of this virtue of stability from my connection to a monastery that I'm very close to and have been for over 20 years near my home. It's a Trappist monastery where I'm a family brother. And they are required to take a vow of stability, a promise of stability that they will stay in the same abbey for life. And this is part of the rule of Benedict and that they follow and, and monasteries around the world follow. And so, you know, these are just some things that I encourage people to think about before they take that now easy step and sign on at a new place. Well, I, th- I think that idea of being in the same place forever. I mean, that frightens me to my core. I, I, you know, that I, I'm so perhaps I'm that kind of fickle generation where I jump around lots and I don't have to have one career or one job and I can do all sorts of different things. And perhaps that's how I've been programmed to the point where I'm inherently unstable. And I was, I was actually going to ask you about what does deep work look like for you just to share with others what, what that might mean. But I also wanted to ask, why is your story so for anybody listening, the work that Sean's been doing in, in setting up his own deeply rooted, ethically, you know, really looking at the value chain of that chocolate company, setting up with your family and your daughter. Why is that? It's been documented loads. You've been on stages, you've podcasted everywhere around it. Why are people interested in? Why is it sort of unique and a story and not the normal? Do you have any sense of that? You know, it might be one of those kind of stories that seem surprising to some but also relatable in both 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 surprising and relatable in the sense that you know i was successful at my job i was making a lot of money i was at the top of my game as a trial lawyer and there really outwardly seemed as though there would be no reason to stop and certainly no reason to stop and do something that at the time nobody was nobody was making bean to bar chocolate in North America. There were about three of us that started at the same time. This is 15, 16 years ago. And so I think there's some interest from the story of 
Like what in the world? And I know my fellow lawyers in my hometown were thinking and saying to me, you know, what are you thinking? What has happened to you? Have you lost your mind? And so I think there's just kind of a, a sort of an interest from that standpoint. And I think there's an interest because there are people listening who think, who are thinking right now, hey, I'm making a lot of money. Everybody says I'm doing a good job. People say that I have developed a talent and a skill set, but you know what? I don't like it anymore. What, what can I do? And so that's why I think there's an interest in it. And as far as the deep work is concerned, my message is really candidly to a fairly narrow lane. You know, I'm, I'm staying in this narrow lane and it's related to this work that I'm getting ready to say. And that is in my book, um, I quote Khalil Gibran, who says that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And so for me, that has been the deep work of connecting with the heartbreak in my own life, which was my dad's death when I was 14. He was a lawyer too and died of lung cancer. And so this was really, really hard for me to watch him die of cancer and just watch him deteriorate. He was a very fit guy, a former Marine. And, and it was so hard for me. It just, it, it was just heartbreaking. So as I went on in my life after he died, I never really came to a place of healing with that. And so I needed to do something after this moment of recognition, as I mentioned earlier, of mind, body, and spirit that I can't, I can't do the courtroom anymore. I needed to do something, some kind of work that would connect me to that pain, sorrow, and heartbreak. And so what I did is I started um, volunteering in the palliative care unit of a nearby hospital, and that's basically hospice in the hospital, people who are dying. And I would go on Fridays, did it for about five years, and just I was just a volunteer, just to talk to people. Often they didn't have family, and I would just talk with them about it, whatever and visit. And then at the end of my visit, I would ask them if they would like me to pray for them. And then I would say, what would you like me to pray for? And I would repeat their words back to them. This was this is what I would call deep work. And because I was and am, you know, a hard charging, very tightly wound, driven person, the research and everything I was doing to try to find my next passion and inspiration was not working at all. But I didn't know at the time that this volunteer work that I was called to do would be the the thing that created emotional space for me. So this was also the place of perhaps in my life, one of my greatest joys. People might find that hard to believe because it sounds morbid, but so this was a place for my sorrow to become unmasked. And it created an emotional space for me to consider other things in my life. And it just so happened that that other thing that came my way was chocolate. And that's it. Well, Sean, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I feel almost abrupt and rude to be moving the conversation on, but the onwards we must go. And I wanted to dive into, you've been talking about your bean to bar chocolate. And I love the idea that chocolate is the salvation and solution as I sit here looking at my chocolate bar. You have been working across continents to really try and understand your where your 
beans come from and that the growers and the, the smallholder farmers and who they are. And this podcast says, you know, we're, we're part of the Business Fights Poverty community. And part of that is to really understand all those people across your value chains. And I wondered whether you would mind sharing with us a bit about what you've learned from those people that you've been working in your value chain as you've really got to know them and, and work with them. Thank you for asking me this question. Um, as I was telling you before we started, no one has ever asked me this. And this is a very important question. Why? Because the question presumes a measure of humility that is key in learning anything from anyone, and especially people that are not where we're from and speak different languages and have different culture and tradition. And, and in this case, you know, we're buying, and I've been buying cocoa beans for almost, well, more than 15 years from Ecuador and the Amazon and, and Tanzania and the Philippines. And these are smallholder farmer groups. Two of the four groups are led by women. This is really important to us. And I think that one of the things that I've learned from the farmers is um, that if I could generalize across the four groups, although you know they're the where they live is not that dissimilar because they're close to the equator, they're in the right climate to grow cocoa beans. Often it's not urban, you know, it's it's a rural setting, and often there's a tradition of growing um, cocoa beans. And so, if I could just say that I have. I aspire to continue to learn from them about this notion of enough. And I have seen repeatedly, year after year, how farmers demonstrate this uh, joy that they have from what we as outsiders would say seems so little. And I think that, you know, that's probably the biggest takeaway for me. And building on that, from that journey that you've been on and, and the learnings that you've developed during that time. So, Sean, uh, I was wondering whether you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, if you had a one-to-one and could sit down with decision makers from other companies or bigger businesses who perhaps had more complicated, longer value chains, what would be your advice to them? The first, I think the first thing that comes to mind is that the notion that really small businesses that seem to have good ideas that are working often appear to big business as though the idea is not scalable. There's this sort of default setting, I think, among big business leaders that, oh, this small business over here seems to be doing something good, but my default setting is going to be, I don't think it's scalable. And I would use, for example, the way we buy cocoa beans from farmers in these four origins using direct trade methods by paying the farmers directly, helping them open bank accounts, helping them become exporters, sharing our profits with them, opening our books to them in their language so they can have access to our financials in Swahili and Spanish and whatever they need. And that they, they, they would, their default setting would be that this is not scalable. And I would like to challenge that and say, well, maybe not all of it, but some of it is appropriately applicable to your business. The other thing I would say is that we're very small. We have 22 full-time employees and we have comparatively basically no impact. I mean, you could say among, you know, 4 million cocoa farmers in the world and 
we're, we're, we're nothing. But I would say that I know my life has been changed by this. My daughter's life has been changed by this. And but when I say this, what I mean is our relationship with the farmers, our relationship with the people that we buy cocoa beans from has changed my life. In fact, it's given me an opportunity to experience, if I could say this, it's given me an opportunity to experience the divine. And and so what I would say to people in big businesses is that I promise you there is a way for your big business to engage in the supply chain in a way that will change your life, in a way that will make you think, well, this day is not going to get any better. I'm not going to have a better day than today. This experience that I'm, this experience that I'm now having will not be duplicated. This is possible. And one of the ways that I think it is possible is by recognizing that the hearts of leadership in many of these big organizations are certainly in the right place. I don't, I don't question that one bit. And I've had the opportunity to experience meeting folks in big businesses when I was a member of the Clinton Global Initiative and other places where I've attended conferences. And I know that their heart is in the right place. But I think the question that needs to be asked among the multinational corporations is this, how much is enough? And that is a question that I think is very challenging for both privately held and publicly traded companies because they believe that their obligation is to the shareholder, their obligation is to shareholder value and to maximum profitability. And, you know, of course, it's not as if um, certified B corporations or public benefit corporations, or frankly, nonprofits must be, can I use the word profitable? I mean, in the nonprofit world, the accounting word is different, but it means the same thing. You got to have enough money to keep the lights on and you have to have enough money to pay top talent, including nonprofits and NGOs across the board. We must do that. But if we're not at the tip top levels asking how much is enough, then nothing will be enough. And I think that we have runaway greed that forgets why we're doing this, what our purpose is. And I'm fearful of this, but, I, but by the same token, I'm very optimistic for the future of capitalism because I believe that we're in the midst of a sea change. And I mean, someone could go on your website for five minutes and know that it's true. I mean, it's happening. And I'm just happy to be a very small part of it. But if we don't ask how much is enough in, in all businesses, not just small, but especially in multinational corporations, then we will not get to this place of what, what I'm speaking, what I spoke of earlier. And that is where people who work in those organizations' lives are transformed because of the work that they do. That can happen, but it won't happen if we don't ask how much is enough. And building on those two points that you just made, you know, how much is enough, but also that sea change in capitalism. Um, you know, we could argue that, well, quite frankly, climate change is going to be the result of those two pieces, the legacy of those two pieces 
really playing out uh, in the full. And I was wondering, again, with your kind of unique position of, of being so close to your value chain, how are you seeing and feeling climate change within that value chain already? Is it affecting you yet? And, and do we sort of what do you expect to happen next? It's happening in every, it's happening in all four origins. And not only is it happening, but in the last, let me just say, in the last two to four years, the farmers themselves have been naming it. So before that time, they weren't naming the problem directly as climate change. Now, for example, let's just take Tanzania. Last week and the week before, the farmers have been telling me, we don't know if we're going to be able to yield the amount of harvest that you will normally require for your contract because of a weather fluctuation that's been happening to us, especially this year, floods. And it has knocked the flowers off of the cocoa trees. And the flowers, of course, are what ultimately become cocoa pods, which become, which have cocoa beans in them, which become fermented and dried and sent to me to make chocolate. And so they, without my asking or investigating whatever, they said, this is because of climate change. And these are not, you know, super sophisticated farmers that, you know, went to the greatest universities in Tanzania. These are people who have, as I say before, a tradition and history of agriculture in their village. And they are naming this problem that we're finding in, in yield as climate change. Same thing in the Philippines. It's sa- the it's same everywhere. But it's literally happening to me now. Like right now, I'm getting ready to send a contract in English and Swahili, but they can't say that they're going to be able to bring our yield by the end of the summer that we need in order to keep our business going because of climate change, because of the massive fluctuations in weather between drought and and flood. And and building on that piece, Sean, what are the trends that you're seeing that perhaps others aren't aware of? Well, you know, some of them are really practical, like this. <laughs> I don't know if you could call it a trend, but let's just say it's a, it's a thing that's happening that's not going away anytime soon at all. And that is the issue of supply chain disruption. And this is, I'm finding to be, um, because of the varied things that we're acquiring, you know, between sugar and cocoa beans and paper products and is that I'm, I'm astounded by the fact that the moment I think the problem might be going away, that it gets worse in terms of lead times and the ability to access. And so we are going to need to develop, you know, sort of ameliorative, ameliorative processes to mitigate this. And that's not going to be easy. And we're in the midst of trying to do that ourselves. The second one I would say related is I believe that given everything that's happening in the world right now, I think um, that globalization is in peril. That's not some massive headline that no one is. I mean, this is not news to your listeners. I'm, I'm saying something they already know. But given what's happening in Ukraine and Europe and China and what we think may happen in China, I'm 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 having to make decisions based on what I think may happen in China. And I have been a person my whole life, you know, I I believe in globalization. I've lived this life. I started traveling when I was in college working 
on the Vietnamese refugee crisis in Thailand and Cambodia. And so I have a, a fear about the fact that globalization is in peril. And uh, I'm not exactly sure what the solutions will be, but one of them I know is that what's not in peril is my relationship with the farmers in these places. These are friends. They are essentially family members, and that relationship is not in peril. And the best example I can think of is I was really worried during the pandemic since I was not able to travel for the first time to go look at the cocoa beans in my entire business history. I was getting ready to take my 46th origin trip when the pandemic hit to visit farms. And here's what happened. Ecuador is an example. I've been buying beans from Italiano for 16 years. We've had the best two crops that we've ever had coming from Ecuador. And I didn't go look at the beans. And it's because Vitaliano cares about me. He cares about my family. And I didn't, I don't know that I deserve that kind of care, but I'll take it and I'm grateful for it. And that's an example of one way to mitigate the risks of globalization in peril is by deepening our relationships in the supply chain. The third thing I would say, and this is a trend, again, I, I, this is not a newsflash, but it's certainly a trend for us. And that is we're getting back into really good practice of cash flow management. And for small businesses, this is very important, especially small businesses that don't have access to a lot of temporary capital. And we had to learn this the hard way during the recession in 2008. And we're dusting off a lot of our cash flow forecasting tools that we used for five or six years after that. And we're using them again. And I think that's very, very important now because there's such tumultuous times from a cash perspective and from a supply and demand perspective that we really need to get good at managing cash flow. 101 in business management there, <laughs> Sean, and, 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 I, and I, such vital advice for anybody, actually, particularly that kind of globalization piece and, and really doubling down on your relationships that you have with those people that you do business with. And, I, and that sort of leads me nicely onto my next kind of question for you, really, which is what advice would you have for others that you have learned as a leader? We had a little chat before we started this recording, Sean, and I happen to know that maybe some of this has changed over time. So I'm curious to know how, how this has changed over time, too. I think, especially during the pandemic, I have counted myself as a, for, over 20 years as a person who relies on a practice of prayer and meditation and faithfulness and this kind of spirituality that is hopefully demonstrated in the work that we do and who we are as, as people and as business people. But the pandemic and just the sort of ancillary effects of the pandemic have really given me an opportunity to relearn the things that I thought I knew. And so I think that this, the thing that I've learned is to have an even deeper understanding of what I don't know, even about the very core things that I thought I did know as a prayerful person. And so what I guess what I'm saying is 
is that again i'm i find myself aspirationally talking about this not because i've reached it but because i'm i want to be there and that is self-awareness i think that self-awareness in these times for leaders um, is paramount and i i have really really found that to be um a hard lesson in the last two years and this is not by the way because my business is sucking wind or we don't have sales or we're not profit it's not about that it's more of a personal thing and and as i was saying before we started that the personal life and the business life for me are all one life and so this this has been a time for me to really peel back the layers of what i thought i knew and now what i perhaps didn't know so that i can become more self-aware and i see this happening with other people as well and especially young people that i meet with as a part of our chocolate university program great advice there and i wanted to round off our conversation today with a question which is what is next for you what's next and new that i'm really looking forward to is the resumption of travel to origin countries and the first place that i'll go is tanzania and we have a lot of community development work there happening after school programs and cocoa bean harvesting that's going to be happening this summer and so what's next for me is to just do everything i can to get back to all four origins hopefully within the next six months and it's it's a as I say, it's something that I need to do, and it's something that I want to do. And I am certain that I won't take for granted even the long flights, the delayed flights, the canceled flights. And I'll be uh, I'll be approaching, you know, long travel with um, gratitude in a way that I lost perhaps in the years before the pandemic. So that's what's next for me. Well, on that note, I wish you all the best with your travels. I hope it is smooth and easy for you. And uh, Sean, massive thank you to you for your time, your ideas, insights, and uh, understanding uh, for this podcast today. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Katie. I appreciate you having me. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.